You are listening to Nutshell with Sam Husco, CFA, CFP, where we take some of the stock market's brightest minds out of their New York element to demystify and summarize the complexities of Wall Street for the general public. Sam Husco works for SGH Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Sam or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SGH Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of SGH Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome. So to kick off this election year, we're fortunate enough to host a special political guest today at the highly engaging 2020 Inside ETF conference here in sunny Florida, architect of the most significant financial market regulation of the last 100 years, the Dodd-Frank rule, and longtime House Representative Barney Frank. Thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Hey, and we are videoing this, but that accent you have is so unique that I don't think we even need that to prove it. Barney, with you know major trade negotiations still looming and very opposing viewpoints of taxation even within the Democratic Party, it feels cliche, but it's another ultra-important Democratic primary. Uh, at this early stage, who do you believe is gaining the most momentum? And what do you kind of track more, polls or endorsements? or One, polls are of general use. It's clear there are four candidates who are doing very well. A fifth, Amy Klobuchar, who's there. Then there's the potential of the big money guys, and you don't know that. But polls are always more reliable in a final election than in a primary. In a final election, you are talking about long, ingrained habits. Most people vote either Democratic or Republican. There are some who go back and forth. In a primary, there are very few people with a history. There are Sanders people, but every primary race tends to be unique. So they are helpful, but not determinative. Secondly, you have what I wish we would get rid of, which is the caucus. They're really not very democratic. Uh, you get different results. In 2016, Hillary Clinton overwhelmingly won the primaries. Bernie Sanders overwhelmingly won the caucuses. The primaries are, I think, a much better way because there are obstacles to people going. And it also, when people are particularly able to go to meetings and they're freer and they're younger and they're able-bodied, they get an advantage in a caucus. So at this point, there are several candidates bunched and there is an ebb and flow. What happens is people react to the primaries. If somebody wins Iowa big, it's one thing. If it's bunched, it's another. With the differences of the candidates, Bloomberg's obviously very different than Sanders. I've heard AOC even come out and say she can't imagine how she's in the same party as Biden. Do you feel like there's just not a clear message today for the Democratic Party? Oh, no, or? I, I, I am very critical of her, and I think this is indicative of, frankly, her unconstructive role. Okay. Uh, I guess, by the way, she means she wouldn't be in the same party either with Barack Obama or with Bill Clinton. So the question is, what Democratic nominee would she have supported? Probably not John Kerry. Uh, Maybe you have to go back to George McGovern. And that wasn't a very optimistic thing. I I think she, frankly, uh, look, this is a woman who began her congressional career by attacking Nancy Pelosi on the environment. I hope she's not very representative. The key is this, and several of them have been saying it, The differences between any set of Democratic candidates and Donald Trump are enormous. And it's inconceivable to anybody who cared about a woman's right to choose, about gay rights, about climate change, about moving towards more fairness, would not want to go out and vote for anybody who was against Donald Trump. He's already, thanks to Mitch McConnell's manipulation, 
got a Supreme Court majority that would get increased over the next couple of years. So the irresponsibility of saying, I'm not going to vote for any Democrat who doesn't exactly please me or there are these yeah. I won't vote for, it's a terrible mistake. I, I thought Hillary Clinton was wrong to attack Bernie Sanders the way she did. I'm not a Sanders fan. I thought she was excessive and it was not useful. But even she has said she'll campaign for him. Mm -hmm. The differences are not so much the end result as how fast you can get there. And frankly, I think both Elizabeth Warren, who I admire a great deal, Senator Sanders, they are mistaken in underestimating the difficulty politically of getting to where they want to go. And as a practical matter, I think any Democrat who wins in 2020, where you will wind up is very similar. There will be an expansion of health care, but not Medicare for all. There will be an increase in taxation on the wealthy, but not Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax. Mm. You will not have the 60 votes in the Senate at the best to get things done. You have political opposition. But one of the things that I think some of my friends forget is this. People have gotten to dislike government. I wish they were not so angry about government. I think government does a lot of good that's taken for granted. But I think in part because of the economic inequality that's grown, there's an anti-government feeling. So well, liberal has this dilemma. We have a whole that is smaller than the sum of our parts. Okay. If you look at the individual proposals for increased taxes on the wealthy, expansion of health care, of raising the minimum wage, or other things of that sort, they're popular. But taken together, they're not, mm -hmm. because people don't like government. <laughs> and so I think what we need to do, and I think the end result will be the same, whichever of them gets elected, you adopt some things that show people in the near term how government action can be helpful to them, mm -hmm. particularly on the issue of economic inequality. And if those succeed, you go further. One of the things conservatives say is, oh, well, this is a slippery slope. You will start with expanding Medicare voluntarily, but you really want to go further. My answer is, yeah, but you know what? We won't be able to go further unless the first step is popular. If they do Medicare for all, and people who want it get it, and that turns out to clog the system and cause problems, then it won't go any further. I mean, if the conservatives had the courage of their convictions, they would say, fine, you want to take a step, okay, you can argue about that step, but don't tell me that step's going to lead to a lot more unless you're prepared to concede that it'll be popular. I mean, with that too then, how should the government decide who is wealthy? Because it sounds like what's coming out is people that are billionaires are saying, yeah, tax me more, or a handful of them at least. But the tax code stops at $620,000 of married filing jointly income. Um, that's a much lower threshold than the people that are saying they want to be taxed more. Well, first of all, the government won't decide anything. There is no such thing as the government. They were the people. Tip O'Neill was a very wise man, the former speaker. And one of the things he liked to say was he would look out at the House of Representatives. He said, remember, there's nobody sitting in here with a vote who didn't get more votes than anybody else in the last election. The people choose the government. Mm -hmm. The people choose who makes those decisions. Now, how do you decide? There are different levels. Obviously, you don't treat a billionaire the same as someone making 600000 Elizabeth Warren, to her credit, has differentiated it. She has mm -hmm. gradations uh, for people at the very top. And I think what you do is, first of all, find there are some people who have so much money that a reasonable level of taxation will not affect them. Frankly, some of the people, people certainly who are worth hundreds of millions of dollars, it seems to me pretty clear that if you raise their taxes, 
they don't know that unless their accountants tell them. <laughs> I mean, literally, these are people who, it, it, it's kind of complicated. So I think there's a, there's a small element of people for whom the tax cut isn't going to make any difference. And I say that explicitly rejecting the notion that at that level it's going to diminish incentive. I don't think Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, or Mary Barra mm -hmm. at General Motors, uh, I don't think any of those people are going to work less hard or less creatively if they have to pay another couple of million dollars in taxes. It's just a nonsense argument. When we had one financial hearing and all the CEOs of the nine biggest companies were there, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Citicorp, et cetera, I asked them if any of them would work less hard if they didn't get bonuses of the millions of dollars they were getting. And they all very emphatically said, oh, of course not. So I then said, all right, let me give you a free piece of consultancy. Save money by not paying yourself bonuses because apparently it wouldn't in any way diminish the effort that the company gets. So you can do that. Then there are people who are going from hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, well, people who are in the millions category. I, yeah, at some point you might be damaging their quality of life. But I think you have a long way to go. Married finally and jointly, I mean, they got kids, so they got to have college on their shoulders, retirement, uh, health care, all those things are on the American people. So sometimes there's, on paper, people that seem rich, but, you know, they're not buying yachts and things like that. Too. Well, some of them are. And, in fact, at, let me say it's 600000 uh -huh. I think you, you have some constraints. When you have people making millions a year, and we're not talking, you, you should not simply divide the world into people making 600 and people making billions. Mm -hmm. uh, there are people making millions. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a fairly large segment of right. people in the financial industry. And they could clearly pay more in taxes. And the burdens, of course, are on everybody, but for many, many, for most people, well, some of the private expenditures are much heavier. Housing and healthcare, mm -hmm. in particular, right. are very heavy burdens, and I think more of them could be publicly shared without diminishing the quality of life of people. I, I, let me put it this way. I haven't seen any tax proposal that was going to diminish in any way the quality of life of people making a couple of million dollars a year, mm -hmm. way less than a billion. So getting back into the primary, we're strong trackers of the U of M Consumer Sentiment Index, and in those polls it's showing the hot buttons for people today are trade war and taxation change. So starting with trade war, it's hard to tell how, you know, a Democrat might pick up the ball from here in the China trade negotiations. You know, in your opinion, who do you think would be the most tough on China? I think that you would see pretty similar results. Again, reality is the big thing here. And I think, one, I, I agree with the president. There was a sense on the part of many mainstream people, Republicans and Democrats, that we had to be careful not to alienate China. Mm -hmm. You would hear the argument that China has, we owe China so much money we have to be nice to them. Well, uh, no, that meant China had to be nice to us because sure. they would have damaged the American economy, they would be hurt. So I think Trump understood that Correctly, I think he's been somewhat uneven in it, but uh, I think you would see, in particular, Democrats continuing to insist. Well, I do not think any Democrat would put as much emphasis as Trump, I think, incorrectly does on the overall balance of what we sell and what we buy. Okay. The notion that when people sell you things, they're cheating you, it just it's, it's at odds with the market economy. And having goods available that you want to pay for is, can be a good thing. 
I think the focus should be even more than Trump has done on the abusive practices the Chinese engage in vis-a-vis American businesses, Mm -hmm. protecting American intellectual property, allowing American companies to function there without giving up their uh, secrets. I think those things any Democratic president will continue. In some areas, by the way, there's coincidence. Uh, The fact that the uh, new version of NAFTA was so overwhelmingly approved, I think that's a sign. In fact, having been first doesn't necessarily mean anything politically. On uh, the North American trade agreement, Mm -hmm. basically Trump agreed with the Democrats. Mm -hmm. Now, he didn't agree with Clinton, but an increasing number of Democrats have been taking the position that Trump took in the uh, Canada-Mexico-U.S. agreement. So in that case, yeah, you, you would see a, uh, a continuation. The question of the balance, mm-hmm. who bought what, right. that, that, I think Trump's just wrong about that. Yeah. That's a very crude and inaccurate representation. Unfair trade practices, sure. which China had engaged in, are legitimate concerns, yep. and I think the Democrats would continue that. I have a family of six, and I have an awful trade imbalance with Costco, but yeah. that doesn't mean that no, you know, you know, I, know I can Costco negotiate with them. Well, <laughs> and the um, fact by the way, among those who have been the victims of that are some of the companies that Democrats care a lot about, the high-tech people. Right. I mean, they've been victims of some of China's practices. Oh, so we're from Detroit, and I don't care what side of the aisle. Everybody in the auto industry knows the IP transfer that's been happening to China. So, But no candidate in particular, I could get you to say that Warren would be a pit bull against China in terms of IP or one or the other. I, I do think there's been a change. I think I'd have to go back and say the, the biggest mistake we made in the trade area and the one that most hurt American workers mm-hmm. was the vote to let China into the World Trade Organization. Okay. There's a consensus that that cost a lot of jobs here. <laughs> and uh, I voted against it. <laughs> Obama was for it. A lot of Democrats were for it. And virtually every Republican was for it. <laughs> so I guess you have to go back and say, well, who were the Democrats were against? That's Sanders, to his credit, was. But I think we've learned from that. So I now think that on the question of IP, as you said, and other trade practices, the Democrats would all be on the, on the right side of it. Okay. And in terms of the stock market, too, a fellow CNBC contributor as well, it feels like Bloomberg or Biden would maybe be the most well-received or, you know, market-friendly. Oh, you... that would be temporary. Temporary? Uh, yeah, look, the stock markets, which is now they become a collective thing, they have two characteristics. Over time, they are a reliable indicator of the economy. In the short term, they're nervous hysterics. Elizabeth Warren won. Maybe a short-term hit. I think it would not last very long. Bloomberg's affinity to the market, that's one of his political bumps. He was, of all the candidates, he was the one, basically, who was not for financial reform. You mentioned mm-hmm. the legislation I worked yeah, on. Yeah. Mike Bloomberg, in 2006, did a, a study that said we were over-regulating the financial industry, and we had to relax. Okay. That was just before the lack of regulation caused it to crumble. But I, I think the policy there, that is... The fear of excessive taxation, again, supposedly the Warren or Bernie Sanders wins. And suppose either of them proposes a tax bill that some people think would be confiscatory, although I think particularly the Warren is graded correctly. Once something that drastic was proposed and was defeated and not even close to being passed, it's gone. Yeah. I mean, I think there, there could be a short-term 
you know, maybe you should expect the market to take a short-term drop, but not a long-term one. And Biden is just, I mean, is this his to kind of win as long as he doesn't do anything controversial, or what's his uh, point? Yeah, I think what he shows is in the first place, I ran for office 20 times. Um, wow. I probably debated opponents, because I always was willing to debate anybody. Um, <laughs> no, you don't. have a disadvantage, you know, people underestimate the difficulty of debating an incumbent when you have not been living that every day, day sure. in, day out. Yeah. You know, I'll be honest with you, there's a temptation when you're debating some of these people who are novices almost to say things that really aren't true because they have no idea. <laughs> um, debating is greatly overrated. In the first place, it is not important for the President of the United States to be a good debater. Who does the President debate? The Presidents don't have equals. I mean, the President is not going to have a debate with Putin or Boris Johnson or sure. Emmanuel Macron. Yeah. Um, it's just not that important. Secondly, it's not that relevant to how well you will govern. And finally, it's not all that important to the voters. I have seen debates. In one of the debates in 2012, I and a lot of the Democrats were disheartened because Barack Obama uncharacteristically did very badly against Mitt Romney. Hmm. It had no serious effect. Sure. In 1984, Ronald Reagan lost a debate to Walter Mondale one-sidedly, and no one cared, at least in terms of how they vote. So I, I think what you're seeing, Biden, is, first of all, this notion that he's too conservative or Ocasio-Cortez, it's just an indication yeah. she does not understand this country. Yeah. If she apparently doesn't realize how much on the left Biden is, I mean, one of the problems that the ideologues make, mistakes they make, is to overestimate public agreement with their specific agenda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Given what Biden advocates, he would be the leftwardmost president of the United States ever. <laughs> I mean, that's just part of course the country is moving that way. Yeah. It would be to the left of Barack Obama, to the left of Bill Clinton. It looked like Hillary's taxation policy she was running on four years ago was less left than what Biden's Absolutely. proposed. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Look, and the last two Democratic presidents supported trade agreements that have virtually no support. The cumulative effect of the inequality in the economy has finally taken hold so that you now see... Uh, in 2012, you saw this. Barack Obama was still pushing the Trans-Pacific policy, but no other Democrats were. Mm-hmm. Even Hillary had to abandon it. I, I think Democrats, the whole country, has appropriately responded to inequality. Look, it used to be if you talked about redistribution, mm-hmm. you were told you were engaging in class warfare. That was a terrible <laughs> thing. And the counter to that was the rising tide lifts all boats. Well, we now understand that the tide rises very unequally, and it does not lift all boats. And there are people, particularly in Northern California, the rising tide is drowning them. They don't have boats, or they have very little boats, and they can't afford to live in the greater San Francisco area. The notion that capitalism continues to produce increased wealth, but produces it in a very maldistributed fashion now dominates American politics. So why don't Democrats go after estate taxes more? Like, is there some political thing that I'm... Like, just, I mean, Trump got it up to, like, what, 23 million is now the exemption for estate tax? Most Democrats, before that, it's a paradox. Horatio Alger story, this notion that the poor guy can make his money, that has had a strong appeal. Many of us, myself, would have been sort of disappointed over the years that the estate tax wasn't more popular. 
I think that's changing. That's one of the examples that for years you had lower income people, they were for abolishing the estate tax. That's no longer the case. And yeah, I think it's a practical matter. If the Democrats take over and have a package, increases, particularly in the exemption level yeah. of the estate tax would, would come in. Yeah, yeah. It just seems like a less politically inflicted move. And I know, but the public seemed to... One of the things that I think analysts in particular underestimate is the importance of public opinion. Yeah. You know, in some ways you have this idea that somehow America is a country of very thoughtful, reasonable voters who inexplicably elect crazy people to govern them. Well, why would they do that? I mean, that... They want to have a beer with their candidate, yeah, right? Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. And um, Tom Steyer, in particular, yeah. mm-hmm. Chris Bloomberg has a track record. Tom Steyer, I guess, is a nice person. There's no <laughs> reason to think he's a good public administrator or what he thinks about things. In uh, some places where he's spending a lot of money, hundreds of thousands and thousands of people are now voting for him simply because he put a good ad up. What I'm saying is that the voters don't always behave the way I would think they should or that logic would. Mm-hmm. And part of it is, and this is a fact that Democrats, I'll go back to this, have to take into account, many government programs are popular, but government is unpopular. The whole is smaller than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. So you have to be careful when you talk about the programs, not to fall into the trap of, uh, of it looking like it's just a huge expansion of government. Look, I learned that in 2009. There's a very good book written about the financial reform bill we passed. Okay. But, my friend Robert Kaiser, and it's a great study of how Congress works, called Active Congress. And I learned from him in that book that Frank Luntz, who was a leading Republican pollster, very much yep, yep. tied into the congressional people, said to the Republicans, look, don't fight financial reform specifically. The financial industry is unpopular. These regulations are popular. But attack them as big government. Yeah. Talk about run against big government, don't run in favor of Citicorp or of the private sector. Now, I think it's eroding. I think look, yeah. the general view in America until fairly recently was capitalism works very well, and the rising tide lifts all boats. And let's not worry about who gets how much. Let's make more for everybody. By the end of the 20th century, and certainly in, in the 21st, it's become clearer and clearer to people that, that that's no longer the case, that, that growth now has a very differential impact. And that government is a legitimate way to deal with that. So I think we're in the midst of a big shift there. Hmm. You bring it up, I'd be remiss to not talk to you about Dodd-Frank a little bit. You know, this last December, the S&P 500 financial index just got back above its 2007 peak. So it took all of this time until now to be officially out of that financial crisis, even though the stock market exited that about six years ago. What's your perspective on the slow recovery of the financial sector? It shows how badly they had behaved and how irresponsible they were. Remember, they got there on their own. Mm -hmm. No legislation brought them to that period. Part of it is, depending on how you measure that, we did do some things that restricted short-term profit, which turned out to have a longer-term negative effect. We have required them, well, for example, what we talk about, we're measuring this by return on capital. One of the big things we did that I think most people agreed with was substantially to increase the amount of capital they had to have. Mm-hmm. Well, the more capital you have to have, the lower your return is going to be True. at any given level of activity. But I think the key is this. The economy has performed very well. Mm-hmm. And there is zero sign that any regulation we put in 
has prevented the financial industry from performing the function it's supposed to perform. Remember, that, their profits are operational. Their role is to finance other activity. They don't make things, but they're there to make sure that the productive activity goes forward. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a single allegation we've had that this was retarded. And in fact, I thought Donald Trump paid us a great tribute the other day at the trade signing when he boasted about how well J.P. Morgan Chase is doing. Well, J.P. Morgan Chase was a major target of the legislation. So if the legislation was so terrible, how did J.P. Morgan Chase do so well? Yeah. And, and with very little change, by the way, with regard to the big banks, there's been zero change yet in what affects them. There was some talk about some further regulatory changes. The one legislative fix that came in actually helped small banks the most. It helped medium-sized banks a little. And it helped the big banks not at all. So I, the record is clear. And I asked people, give me a specific. What is it in, in the Dodd-Frank bill that you think was the problem? There was some concern that the ban on proprietary trading at banks was going to be a problem. I don't see any sign that that has diminished liquidity. What about that line in the sand of what is a mega bank? And is it harder for a small bank to become that mega bank after they're already decided? It would have been. I think 50 billion was a mistake. Yeah. And I was for raising the 50 billion actually to 100 or 150. Okay. In fact, Congress raised it to 250. Now, I that worries me some because generally you don't get just one bank that fails, you may get a couple. Yeah. Lehman Brothers had 700 billion in assets. Yeah. Well, when you get to 250, that means three failures and you're at Lehman. Mm -hmm. In fact, what was terrible, I thought it was a mistake, just a handful of banks between 150 and 250. Now that it's 250 billion, I don't see any sign that there's a problem. I don't see any sign that Citicorp or Bank of America is having problems. Well, Fargo's having problems, but those are all self-inflicted. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing in the regulations probably yeah, uh, sure. kept them from from getting worse. So, uh, now there was this problem, and I'm, I should say I'm on the board of a bank that was getting close to the 50 billion. Okay. Fortunately for me, I had come out for increasing the 50 billion years before I literally had even heard of the bank on whose board I said. Okay. Daniel Trullo, who was the best regulator under the Obama administration at the Fed, okay. had called in a speech in 2013 for raising the 50 billion. Okay. And for exempting the uh, banks under 10 from the Volcker rule, both of which happened in that bill and both of which I supported. And so I was publicly on record that 50 was too low. I was talking 100 or 150. As I said, 250 seemed to me to be too much, but not, not enormously damaging. The problem was, as banks were approaching the 50, they were kind of maybe not trying to grow as much. <laughs> right. That's gone now. I don't yeah. know any. I can't think of a single bank which is worried now that there are 230 that they might hit 250 yeah. and, and go over. And so no stoppage of loans to small businesses, no, anything fact, like that? Trump early on said, oh, there's a bump. People aren't getting on. The bank said, no, that's not true. Okay. I mean, what you had early on was people, the bank said, we haven't got customers. Yeah. There is, again, literally zero indication that there's been any shortfall in loans and zero indication that requiring people who engage in the trade and derivatives have to make sure they have the money up for it. Yep. There's been no problem. Some people raised the question, well, what about the repo issue? Was that a sign of uh, liquidity? And the answer was no. By the way, one of the things I admire about Trump, his ability to blame other people for his own mistakes. 
The Federal Reserve consists largely of Trump appointees, but he manages to claim that they were some infliction imposed upon him. The Fed consistently denies that there was any structural liquidity problem with the repos. And in fact, it's a sign, I think, of how well the system is working, that when for some reason there was a repo problem, the system was easily able to correct it, put some money in, and everything's fine. Hmm. So we're from Detroit. We have some 2008 PTSD. Can you tell our audience why or if we're more protected now today to not dip back into yeah. a 2008? Or? First of all, what happened was, for two reasons, people had the ability in the financial system, this is the heart of it, to lend other people money without being responsible if they failed to pay it back. I mean, 60 years ago, people can talk to you know, their grandparents if they're still alive or whatever. If you borrowed money, you borrowed it from an institution which required you to pay it back once a month for 30 years or you're shorter when you sold it. And that was the discipline. People would not lend money to people who weren't going to pay them back because they would suffer. Mm -hmm. And then two things changed that. First of all, a lot of money came into America beginning in the 70s from outside the banking system. Banks raise money from deposits and they're insured and the federal government regulates that. But now we had the uh, OPEC countries. Mm. We had countries, Japan, China, had building up bigger and bigger surpluses with the US. So a lot of money became available outside America to be sent to America for lending, but outside the banking system. Mm. Money was accumulated that didn't have to be accumulated by insured and regulated deposits. Secondly, and this is a fact that people forget, information technology. What we have is institutions making thousands, tens of thousands of loans, yeah. packaging them and selling them at various times. You couldn't do that by hand. Right. You couldn't do that in 1950 or 1960. So information technology and a lot of free cash enabled the financial industry to come up with uh, ways to lend money and in no way be responsible if those loans weren't good. Yeah. And we changed that. Yeah. We basically, in a variety of ways, greatly increased the responsibility institutions have for bad loans. Hmm. And that's what's, that's what's key. Yeah. Um, that means uh, you can't make mortgage loans to people who can't pay it back. In particular, it's derivatives. Derivatives were a totally unregulated operation. In September of 2008, AIG told the Federal Reserve, right after Lehman, failed, that they were $85 billion short of being able to pay the credit default swaps they owed. Insurance, they had sold insurance to people on their securities, and they were $85 billion short. A week later, when Ben Bernanke was talking to us, members of Congress leadership, and he said, I'm going to need this much, this much, and the Fed gave me $85 billion, uh, advanced it. It was payback, but advanced it. A week later, Bernanke said, oh, and $85 billion for AIG. And we said, oh, Ben, you told us that already. He said, oh, no, I'm sorry. That's an additional $85 billion. <laughs> It turned out, this is uncontested, AIG thought there were $85 billion in the hole, but they were $170 billion in the hole. Wow. Those were commitments they had taken on that they couldn't pay. Can't do that anymore. Yeah. You cannot make those commitments without going on an exchange and having the money. That's essentially what we did. Good, good. Today you're representing the LBGTQ ETF. That's that's a pretty good pretty good part of the alphabet, I guess. <laughs> you, you, you can use that as a drunk test. <laughs> 
but yeah, new socially responsible way of investing. Yes. We're really familiar with ESG. I was putting your money where your mouth is, right? Exactly. Uh, being able to support the things that you believe in. As long as you don't take that metaphor too literally. Yeah. <laughs> okay. For a soulless corporation, how do you know that they actually support? That's a very fair question. Because we don't care what's in their hearts, we care what's in their practices. How do you treat your employees? Are there benefits that you extend to heterosexual employees, couples, for example, that you don't extend to gay, lesbian, bisexual ones? One of, now, obviously, marriage you can't discriminate anymore, mm-hmm. but talk about child care. Yeah. Do you treat adoptive parents mm-hmm. very differently than birth parents in terms of parental leave because there will be a higher incidence of, of the adoption on the gay and lesbian sector. You look at their practices. You also, we are polling, frankly, to see what products gay and lesbian people themselves choose. Look, consumer sovereignty is a very important part of this. So you were both seeing what their practices are mm-hmm. and what gay and lesbian people think about them and how they respond. So is there an application process for the corporations, or is this all yeah, done we, by no, you? We apply it. We have a okay. methodology working with very sophisticated uh, companies that do this. Which company? We poll mm-hmm. gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people and get their sense of things. It has to do in part with what positions they take politically. Yeah. You know, like you pair this with Popeyes or, or whatever, yeah, right. or some of the pizza places. Hobby Lobby. And by the way, yes, people have a right to their own opinions, but I also have a right not to give my money to people sure. with whom I disagree. So it's a fairly easy thing to do. You poll people and you monitor. What we are measuring are public acts that are easily measured. Okay. There's nothing hidden. There's no right. need to probe people's inner motives. We're talking about what they say, what they do, who they contribute money to with a corporation, etc. Okay. And my last question, can you give us who you think's going to come out of the Democratic primary or at this no, point? No, I can't for this reason. Ah, okay. I uh, <laughs> have just been appointed to be the uh, co-chair of the Rules Committee at okay. the convention, which I did last time. And people are very sensitive to any sure. indication of bias. And I did it last time when I was a big Hillary Clinton supporter and, and not a big Bernie Sanders fan. But we ended up with a perfect compromise, so... You're Switzerland. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm officially neutral. All right. Well, hey, thank you very much for your time well, today, time. Barney. Yeah, uh, really enjoyed talking to you, thanks. so thanks again. Okay, good, buddy. Thank, thank you. you. No, thank you.